Hey, this is Andy Jenkins with the Warrior Hope Podcast. Every single week, we really take on this idea of this twofold goal of finding healing from the past and helping you identify the next mission. Or, or if you know that and already have an idea of what that purpose, what that calling is, then we, we give you some tools to where you can actually empower others and help them find that. We believe that enemy that most warriors face now at this season is isolation and this sense that the best days, that the mission is all behind. The reality is the mission, the purpose, the calling, everything that you're going to do is now at this point in the present or in the future. So again, objectives, number one, find healing. Number two, find, identify your next mission. And then let's walk together because we're better together. Now, in this episode, I've I've got this. This was really humbling. Uh, A couple weeks ago, we did a training for leaders to get certified in the Warrior Hope curriculum, which is what we use at the Centers of Hope. Down in the links in the show notes, I'll put some information about the Centers of Hope and about that book. We had people that came from all over, really kind of the eastern side of the U.S., so I don't think anybody had really gone as far west as, we had some people from Chicago, we had some people as far west as kind of the Jackson, Mississippi area, as far north as New York, as far south, some people from Florida, a lot from Birmingham, Atlanta, kind of all clustered. You can kind of geographically kind of see where that is. And I was astounded at the caliber of people that were in that room. Now, one of them is the guest today. Uh, his name is General <laughs> General James H. Mukoyama. Now, he has dedicated his career to the service of our nation uh, for service in combat. He was awarded the Silver Star Medal, the Legion of Merit, the Bronze Star Medal, and not one, not two, but three Purple Hearts. He he earned a promotion to the rank of Major General, and in the retirement, he now serves as the president and the CEO of a nonprofit organization, Military Outreach USA. We're going to talk about all of that and talk about his story and how he was one of the first Japanese Americans to, to be promoted to that rank. In fact, I actually think he was the first. So we're, we're there, and we have this long-standing relationship, Crosswinds does, with, with the general. It's a, actually an incredible story of how uh, he got in touch with Crosswinds after watching uh, the first film. He's appeared in the film uh, honoring the code because this gentleman really understands and empowers people to walk through moral injury. In fact, if you've seen the clip from that film, uh, you've probably, you'll recognize his voice as soon as he begins talking. He's distinguished, a man of honor. And I remember telling him, hey, I would love to interview you for the podcast. And right at the beginning of the training, he, he, he actually said, hey, well, hey, let's let's make it happen. This, this is important. Like, let's let's sit down let's get together and so again based on the connection that he had with Bob they worked together for several years kind of forging this idea of how do you empower warriors coming through moral injury he just invited me to his room we just sat down put the microphone right there the coffee table and he invited me into this incredible conversation so here it is. I want you to listen to and enjoy Major General Jim Mugoyama. Hey, I'm actually sitting up here. This is, I think we're in the third floor of the Drury Hotel. We just got finished doing the first ever Warrior Hope 
Centers of Hope Leader Certification. And uh, this is one of the things that was really surprising is the caliber of leaders that came to this. One of them is Major General James Oyama. Mukoyama. Right. Talk to me. It's I, I'm honored to have you here. First of all, I mean, like you should have been training us is what I feel. And then second of all, to take time after all of this to come here and just be able to talk with you and hear a little bit about your story. Well, Andy, this has been a God thing. This this whole conference, the because I, I know Linwood uh, personally, Linwood Bregan, and uh, I was involved with the Honoring the Code uh, DVD right. production. Uh, and he called me, we talked uh, a few months ago, and he mentioned he was having this conference. And then he talked about the manuals that, that you guys are producing. Yeah, the Warrior Hope. Right, and it's just, it's exactly what Military Outreach USA, which is my nonprofit faith-based organization, because uh -huh. we're brothers in our service to the Lord, and uh, we were looking for content. Okay. And we don't have a, a, uh, a Bob and an Andy who can put all this stuff together. And uh, it happened. It all comes together. Yeah, it does. We're, we're definitely, especially now, I've gone through the training. Yeah. Uh, I understand uh, what it is, and it's, it's just perfect for our being able to share this with our network of uh, houses of worship and organizations and encourage them to have centers of hope. Well, and I appreciate that. I, I, you guys are doing a lot of incredible work with Military Outreach USA, and that's the website. I'll put it in the show notes. It's militaryoutreachusa.org. Yes. And so we'll put that where people can go and find out more. I want to get to that, and I want to hear the story of Military Outreach USA. But uh, before we get to that, let's, let's talk a little bit about you and tell me your background. You said that you guys grew up in Chicago. You grew up in a apartment. Yes, uh, I, I, my was, father uh, immigrated from Japan okay. in 1918. Oh, wow. And, and he, uh, he, he was really a neat guy. Uh, he was very unusual for a, a Japanese immigrant in those days. Most of them came from rural areas, and they, they were uh, somewhat, uh, they were introverts shall we say. Okay. Uh, but my dad wasn't like that. He came here when he was 18. Uh, he, he traveled uh, throughout the, the West Coast, uh, what was in Arizona, California, worked his way down the coast into Mexico. Was, it, was he come over by himself? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And he, so just, uh, a, just a lone ranger? Just Well, no. What, here's what happened. His, his father, my grandfather, okay, okay, uh, he was, uh, we lived in a rural area in Japan near Mount Fuji. Okay. My last name is Mukoyama. Muko means over there and Yama means mountain. But I, I'm, a, I'm an English major, so I like to say yonder mountain. Okay. <laughs> and uh, every day from my dad's backyard, he could see Mount Fuji. So it's really beautiful. And my, my uh, grandfather, uh, they, they own land. Uh, and he was kind of like the mayor of uh, a group of villages. And he had kind of uh, lost half of the family fortune because he was investing in sake futures or something, whatever it was. So 
he came to the United States by himself in 19... Now, my father was born in 1900, okay? My grandfather left Japan in 1901 to come to America to try to make money, you know, kind of reclaim the lost money. Yeah, American dream and right? all of and that. And then yeah. go back to Land Japan and, you know, with honor and all that stuff, right? So he comes here in 1901, and in 1918, he's still here, right? So 17 he, years later, right? He your dad's now 18. Right, and and my grandmother, who's raising seven kids, by the way. Back in Japan, oh, yeah. at the foot of Mount Fuji. Okay. Right, okay. She, she tells my dad, you go to the United States, and you get your father to come back. So that was his mission. So his charge is to come get his dad and drag him back, even if kicking and screaming, back to Japan. Well, to get him to come back. Okay. Okay. So he does that. He comes to he comes to the states, meets his dad, you know, and gets his father to go back to Japan. Okay. And my dad just stayed here by himself. And he, <laughs> so and your he, mom swapped adults, yeah. basically. Okay. So he basically, like I said, and he did everything you can imagine. He was a houseboy for millionaires. He was a, a uh, uh, he sold cars. He sold life insurance. He was a gandy man on a railroad, uh, and he he uh, got down into Mexico. And I don't know what he did when he was in Mexico, but he was there for like five or six years, and then he came back up through the Mississippi River Valley, and he winds up in Chicago in the late twenties. Okay. okay, so. You know, he basically was doing all this stuff, and maybe it was maybe early 30s. And uh, then he marries my mom, and he settles down. And Is your mom from Chicago? No, my mother. <laughs> so that's not what stopped him. Okay. No, no, my, my mom was uh, born in Madison, Wisconsin. Her family, her parents came from Japan also, uh, but she was born in Madison, Wisconsin. So, you know, so they get married. So I was born in Chicago. Okay. Uh, inner city of Chicago. It's an area called Logan Square, and uh, I'm I'm strictly a city guy. Uh, we were kind of, I'd say, lower middle class uh, economically. Uh, we uh, never owned a home uh, as I was growing up. We always lived in an apartment, and uh, but I never felt poor because we had a nuclear family. Uh, my grandparents actually lived with us in this in this, in this apartment, you know. So it's my grandparents, my parents, my brother, and I. And every Sunday, we put on our Sunday best clothes and we would walk to church. Uh, okay. My grandparents were Christian, and we saw the church was my foundation my whole life. I was baptized and confirmed. It was a Methodist church. Uh, I was in. Cub Scouts, I was in Boy Scouts, all of that, all of those were church-centered activities. And uh, of course the motto for scouting is for God and country. Right. And uh, so I was very blessed. And, and so I grew up in Chicago, went to Chicago public schools, went to the University of Illinois, uh, and I uh, got my commission in the Army. Uh, my goal was initially to become a chaplain in the army. Uh, but I, little problem, my, I'm Protestant and my denomination at that time was the United Church of Christ uh, denomination. And it, it went too far theologically to the left for me. 
okay? And so I, I was in a catch-22 situation because in order to become a chaplain, you must be endorsed by your denomination. Okay. And I was not accepting the theology, so when I was praying to God at that time, I said, God, I guess you want me to do my military thing. And that's what I did. I, so, so what led you to that decision to even go the military route? Well, because uh, numerous things. Number one, uh, in the Japanese culture, the, in the social stratas in the culture, the highest profession is that of the warrior, the samurai. Okay. Okay. In Chinese culture, it's different. The highest the highest profession is being a scholar, okay? But in Japan, it's the samurai. So that was one reason. So for, was, yeah, because your culture is, I right. mean, that's, yeah, your father was. Yeah. And then my, my brother uh, had served in the army. I have an older brother. So he had served in the army. And my, in fact, he was serving in the army when I was in high school. Okay. Uh, and. Chicago has the nation's largest junior ROTC system in the country. We had 40 high schools that have junior ROTC. Oh, wow. And, and it's not a recruitment thing for, for the military. Not, not everybody who goes through junior ROTC goes into the military. It's a great program for high schoolers to give them experience in leadership, teamwork, discipline. And, and we've got great role models with the, with the instructors. And especially for the inner city, that's really important. Right. Because they have something that they can belong to other than gangs. And so I, was, I loved the military, but I also wanted to become a minister. So, so that was going to combine both of those if you went to chaplaincy, right? Right, right. Okay. But the chaplain... No. So chaplaincy doesn't work out, and so right. you end up... Concentrating totally on military, okay. on my military career. So you're going to be a soldier. Yeah, and I was going to be an, I was going to be an officer. That, that's one thing. I had to be an officer. Okay. And number two, I had to be an infantry soldier. And uh, no other branch was acceptable, and, uh, and I was able to attain, attain, obtain that. I was commissioned as a regular army infantry officer in 1965 at the University of Illinois and I, I stayed a year in graduate school and I got my master's degree uh, and, and then I went on active duty. I was already on active duty uh, uh, but I was able to get a year of leave so I could, I could get my master's degree so I'd be a, more valuable to the army and it didn't cost them anything because I wasn't paid during that time, uh, but I was able to get get my master's degree. What's the What's your master's in? Just curious. Uh, teaching of social studies. Okay. I, I had a Far Eastern Affairs major, uh, Chinese, Japanese, political science, history, language, and my bachelor's was English, uh, li English literature. Okay. When I was in college, what I want, I was trying to prepare to. I'm pretty focused, and when I decide I'm going to do something. So when I was working on my bachelor's degree, I said, well, you know, what, what would help me, what would help prepare me best to be an officer in the United States Army? And I narrowed it to two subjects, psychology and English literature. I, 
after my first semester of taking psychology, you know, Pavlov and his dogs and all that stuff, I said, you know, what does this have to do with relationships with people and, you know, leadership? And, and so I rejected that. But in English literature, if you read the great literary novels and you, like, you go from every man to Shakespeare to, you know, in place, every man to Shakespeare to Hemingway, there are universal traits of human nature right. that jump out at you. And if you can understand those, you can better understand what motivates people. Correct. And therefore, make you a better, better leader. leader. Okay? Yeah. And also, I just felt simply by reading the best writers of all time, by sheer osmosis, some of that would rub off on me and I could express myself better. So that's why it so wasn't, worked out. wasn't my best subject. My best subject was math and history. But... You know, it was what it was. <laughs> so you uh, you enlist in the '60s, and uh, you face deployment pretty soon thereafter. Oh yeah, Vietnam. When I graduated with my master's degree, it's now '66. Okay. And Vietnam was really heating up at that time, so I knew I was go- I was going to go to Vietnam. So you weren't drafted. You you no, enlisted, and then yeah, in, you, fact, in fact, I volunteered right in the for of Vietnam. Okay. And, and the Army, in its infinite wisdom, sends me to Korea instead on the DMZ. But it was really a blessing. So let's tell everybody what the DMZ is. Really yeah, it's, it's the, the militarized zone that separates North Korea from South Korea. Okay, Which is really just kind of a, a line in the sand, basically. Yeah, it's the I mean, 38th is... parallel. And, uh, in fact, you know, it's, it's been in the news with Kim, Kim uh, the... the, the uh, President of South Korea. Yeah, he gets uh, a flexing contest every yeah, couple months. And... Right. So uh, we patrolled that DMZ. We had part of the DMZ, and uh, we had uh, we had the division online, which was the Second Infantry Division. Were you guys on the ground? Oh yeah. What's interesting is I just interviewed uh, Scott Strickland, and he was in Apache helicopters up in the air. Uh, and I, the I, DMZ, I wonder if he was. I don't, no, I don't know if in, he was in the DMZ or no, if he, he was wasn't. somewhere else. You in the DMZ uh, helicopters are not permitted. Okay, so he would have been somewhere else. Yeah, he'd be, same he country. would be south. He'd be. He would have been south. And so, so y'all were close to each other, nonetheless. So yeah. somewhere, but so we did combat patrolling, and we had uh, what a lot of people don't know. So we or don't. It was reported, but you know, Vietnam was hot at that time. Right. So what was happening in South Korea wasn't that big a deal. And we didn't have CNN at that time. So I'll give you an example. We had a patrol where six out of seven guys were killed. Now, if that happened today... Oh, it would be all over oh, social media. Yeah, and... yeah. It was like page 54 in the Chicago Tribune. You know, it wasn't... It wasn't we had... Uh, so we had firefights, and, and, and we had guys killed and wounded. We had barracks blown up... Uh, uh, and I was there for 13 months, uh, so it was it was a blessing for me because I got early combat experience in the DMZ. Uh, came back to the states uh, for about 18 months, then I volunteered for Vietnam again, and this time the army took me up on my offer, and, and I went to uh, Vietnam. I was with the 9th Infantry Division in the. Four Corps, which was the southern part of Vietnam, uh, and I was a company commander. And then uh, I was only in country for five months, and President Nixon withdrew our unit out of Vietnam. 
So I could have taken my company back to Schofield Barracks, Hawaii, uh, but I turned it down. I, I was a young guy, I was a bachelor, and, and frankly, I was thinking of not continuing my career in the military. And this was now, I'm, I'm five years on active duty. Okay. And I was not uh, happy with the way the military was going in terms of leadership. They were more, it looked to me as if they were more interested in developing managers than leaders you know, like political correctness and things, and uh, that wasn't what I had signed up for. So so I stayed because I wanted to complete my tour. You know, I had friends who had, uh, had gone over for their second, some three tours, and I didn't, I felt obligated to stay, and just, so I did. And then when I came back, I resigned my regular Army commission. I joined the Army Reserves and I stayed in the reserves for 27 years. And the reason I joined the reserves is at that time, which was 1970, uh, 70, 71, the reserve components did not have a lot of combat experienced guys. Especially, I would imagine, a combat experienced officer. Yeah. That would... yeah. So, I, so I felt I had something to contribute. And the good Lord blessed me uh, I had great non-commissioned officers who made me look good, and I had commanders who mentored me. So I was promoted very rapidly. And in fact, when I was promoted the one-star general, brigadier general, I was the youngest general officer in the Army. How old were you at that time? 42. Oh, wow. And three years later, I was the youngest two-star general. So I was extremely blessed, and I was the first Asian-American to command an army division in the history of the army. My division was a reserve army training division. Our wartime mission, in case of war, was to go to Fort Benning, Georgia, the home of the United States Army Infantry, and take over the training of the recruits at Fort Benning. Uh -huh. And that's exactly what happened. Desert Storm hit. Yeah. And so I took my half my division to Fort Benning, it's like I died and went to heaven because uh, I was an infantry guy. Yeah, you're a leader, officer, yeah, yeah you've got this combat experience, right. which is going to be helpful for these right. guys that you're training. So, But the war ended so quick. We were only there for 60 days and we came back, but it was a, a great experience. Once again, I had, I had tremendous NCOs and officers who did a great job. Um, tell me this, you know, you're being from a Japanese background. I, I, I mean, literally, like you, you are a Japanese American. Mm -hmm. You know, your dad is a Japanese man. Uh, I'm just thinking through to World War II, and a lot of the racism that happened over on the West Coast. Did you face any of that when you got in the military, or? Well, yeah, is keep it, in mind now that you know I was born during World War II, right? And uh, so I grew up. I grew up in the 50s and 60s, and uh, when I got into the Army, there was still, when I was growing up, actually, there was a lot of prejudice because of Pearl Harbor. Right. Okay. And so, uh, you know, yeah, there, I, I would be called a Jap, and, and uh, not too many times, because one, one time a guy did, and I basically... Took care of it. <laughs> I certainly did. And... 
it was so funny because I was always the smallest guy, and I, I'm not a big guy. I'm five foot four, okay, and 125 yeah, pounds, may, may 20 be. pounds stripping wet. Well, like and, a like a jockey that would yeah, yeah race a horse. Right. Yeah. So I had a, a guy in grammar school, and I was like, oh, at that time I was only nine years old or something, and the guy called me a jap, and I lost it. The guy was on the ground in five seconds, and I was beating the guy. And people were just stunned. You know, they pulled me off and the guy, like, they'd never seen me do that. Yeah. You know, really, I was always just Jim, the, you know, the nerd. Very easy going, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, but uh, I, that that was one that was one of the few times I've lost my temper. But uh, not real proud of that, but it happened. So, uh, but, uh, yeah, we, there was some prejudice. Uh, well, I talk, you know, as we talked to several of the veterans today, they say when you get to boot camp, a lot of that tends to go away. Um, because you start finding out that I mean, there's a camaraderie that develops that cuts across. Well, we now, you have to understand. I was an officer when I went. Right. Uh, but also, when I was at the University of Illinois, uh, you know, I was in senior ROTC. Okay. So we had a summer camp, which was really our boot camp, uh, as a as a ROTC guy at uh, Fort Riley, Kansas, and you know, so we're you know. 20, 21 year olds at, you know, going through this and uh, some prejudice, but not a lot. But not then, a lot. Yeah, but when, when I went to Fort Benning, uh, we had a class of officers. Now we're all second lieutenants, but we're students. Okay. Because we're going through our basic officer course, right? And there were about 15 of us that were Asian. Okay. And in a infantry company, you have three, you have four platoons normally, three rifle platoons, and one weapons platoon. Okay, the weapons platoon has machine guns and mortars, heavy equipment. Okay, and all let's say there are 15, 15 of us in my class. Okay, all fifteen of us were assigned to the weapons platoon. To do the heavy lifting. The so, yeah, so we would carry the mortar plates, the mortar tubes, the machine guns, you know, because the, and we all knew what was going on. I mean, yeah. those of us who were Asian, you know. But you, had, you just had to suck it up and, you know, move forward. And, uh, you know, we always had, my father always told my brother and I when we were growing up uh, to never disgrace our family, or our race. But always remember that you are an American and be proud that you're an American and because you have opportunities that he didn't have in Japan. You know, and we never forgot that. I imagine he brought a powerful perspective to that because now you've got this mantra that you say. Yeah. I mean, you've hit me with it three or four times today. My daily mantra is every day is a great day. I have my faith, my family, and live in the finest country in the world. I say it every day, every chance I can get, because as a very young man in Vietnam, I was an infantry soldier in combat. There were times I didn't know if I was going to be alive the next moment, much less see the next sunrise. When you're in those circumstances, what is important in life becomes clearly focused, and that is faith, family, living in this great nation and that priority 
and it doesn't get any better than that. It's, it's amazing that you kept that after all those years because what tends to happen a lot of times when people are in a crisis moment or traumatic moment, that clears up pretty well what's important to you. But then our memory seems to fade and we, after life gets back to, you know, quote, normal, we, we tend to forget those things. Well, and, you know, you've I've, kind of embedded it into where you're, I've man, been you repeat so this affirmation life. over and over and over. I've been so blessed in life by the good Lord that uh, I couldn't forget it. it because it's, hap- it, it's my whole life. It's been my whole life. I mean, I have a wonderful wife of 48 years now. Who she's uh, Korean from Korea, uh, but I met her in the States. Uh, but uh, so that's a blessing because if anybody knows the history between Korea and Japan, it's the animosity is so bad that the odds of a Japanese guy marrying a Korean woman on a scale of one to a hundred is a minus fifty, and yet. The good Lord put us together, and I was able to marry her. And she's, she's been an angel. Uh, she's beautiful inside and out. She's put up with my uh, failures. I haven't been the best husband. I have, I've had an anger management problems. Uh, but she stuck with me, and I thank the good Lord every day for her. She let my parents, not her parents, my parents lived with us in the same house for 22 years until they passed away. Oh, wow. Tell me her name. Uh, KJ. Her K- real KJ. Her, yeah, her Korean name is Kyungja, but everybody calls her KJ. KJ. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Sweet woman. Uh, inside uh, the film Honoring the Code, mm-hmm. uh, that you're, you're featured in a lot. In fact, we've, we've got clips of that we've even put together to... Uh, show people as part of the Warrior Hope training, uh, as part of the curriculum. Uh, there, we've got you on several of the clips. One of them is yeah, a story where you talk very about... very surprised and honored, uh, by the way, to see that. Well, I mean, you know, the, the stuff you say is so uh, concise and so uh, relevant. One of them is a story where you refer to uh, being on, on a Vietnamese battlefield. Uh, and then another clip that we actually have is where you talk about moral injury. You help define... And so uh, what I'd like to do is, you know, take me, take, take everybody that's listening to that battlefield. Uh, there's one particular battle that, that you guys had, had sure. won. Sure, I was, a, I was a company commander. Uh, company's about 200 soldiers. So you have 200 out there that you're leading. Yeah, yeah. And uh, on that one, it was probably less than 200 because we were limited how many soldiers we could take on the operation by the number of helicopters. We, we did air mobile operations, which means that we were supported by helicopters, and we were limited by the number of helicopters we would have on an operation as to how many soldiers we could take. Okay. But let's say, let's say I had 175, okay. uh, and we had just had a battle with the Viet Cong. We had overrun uh, a VC position. We had killed numerous enemy. And uh, three bodies were at my feet. Three Viet Cong bodies. How old are you when this happens? Twenty-four. So you're young. I mean, and you're in charge. Yeah, uh, but I was I was the guy in charge. Fresh and, out of grad school. I mean, this is. Yeah. Well, no. By that time, I had uh, three and a half years of because I had the Korean. Yeah, you had experience. the Korean experience. Okay. So so there I am, and the time a unit is most vulnerable is right after a victory 
Why is that? It's just human nature to let your guard down okay. and kind of breathe a sigh of relief. Okay, okay. yeah, because I imagine it, battle, it, you're amped up, you don't know what's going to happen. Right. So now, okay, everybody can breathe, we can relax. Yeah. This is a vulnerable time, and you have... Yeah, and I'm, but I'm the guy in charge. I'm the pro. So you I, I know be this. relaxed. Okay, so I'm on my radio, and I'm talking to my platoon leaders, and I'm barking out orders, and I'm telling them, to reorganize their units, take care of their wounded, redistribute ammunition, look for enemy avenues of approach for a counterattack. And in the middle of all that stuff going on, I stopped and I looked at the three bodies at my feet. And I recognized that something had happened to me. Something had hardened my heart. Only moments earlier, these were alive human beings. They were children of God. They had families, they had loved ones, they had emotions, and they were fighting for something as important to them as I was fighting for, and I'm in their backyard. And I'm treating them like they're just bumps on a log. And then I remember Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he told us to pray for our enemies. So in the midst of all this going on, I said a prayer for the three Viet Cong uh, and their families. And, and I know I was praying for my, myself as well. I didn't have a big ceremony, didn't get on my hands and knees. Mm -hmm. All of this took about 45 seconds, maybe, uh, in my mind. But it's something that's always stuck with me, in my, not only in my mind, but in my heart ever since. What do you think was going on in that moment? Uh, I think that uh, God was talking to me. And, you know, Jim, you know, look, look what has happened to you. You know, and so that was uh, very few moments like that in life where I... Yeah, I, I didn't hear God speaking to me, but you're asking me, you know, why what I thought was going on. Yeah. That's that what was happening. And I had I had sustained the moral injury at that time, but didn't realize it. Let's talk about moral injury for a bit. Sure. People heard about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, how, how do you define moral injury? Because m my opinion is there's probably more people dealing with moral injury than there are post-traumatic stress. Um, uh, I would say I would say for combat veterans, probably. Uh, moral injury is a, a very simple concept. You'll get it in 30 seconds. From the time you're born until you're 18 years old, you develop a personal moral code, a sense of right or wrong. That could come from your family, your religion, your community, your friends, whatever. You develop a personal moral code. Then you join the military and you learn a warrior code. That warrior code is superimposed on your personal moral code and in fact transforms it somewhat. Then you might have to participate in activities or operations that violate your personal moral code such as killing. You don't have to be the person that pulls the trigger. You could be a witness 
or you could feel you should have prevented it. Or you can follow another unit and see that innocent civilians have been killed. Or you handle body parts. At that time, you sustain a so-called invisible wound of war. It's not physical. Right. You can't see it. And it's called moral injury. But in military operations, you're constantly moving from point A to point B to point C. You don't have time to stop and reflect on this stuff. So what do you do? You bury it. You suppress it. And it becomes unresolved guilt and shame. And then later on, it could be years or decades later, or it could be months later. Let's say you come back to the States and you leave the military and you come back to a, a civilian community like Chicago or Birmingham or Seattle to a civilian community that doesn't understand what you've been through. And it bubbles up to the surface. Unless you have a strong coping mechanism for that, or a strong support group, bad stuff happens. Anger, guilt, depression, suicide. Do you think a lot of the, so they have stats out there, like 22 suicides a day or more uh, from veterans. Do, do you think that a lot of that is driven by this moral injury oh, more yeah. so than yeah, maybe I, PTSD because of the guilt, the shame that's associated there? Yes, uh, at, this, at this time, I think it's clear because out of the uh, approximately 22 per day, there, there's controversy as to how many really, uh -huh. but let's say 22 per day, uh, two-thirds of those that have been reported are older than 50 years old. It's not the younger vets from Iraq and Afghanistan that are the vast majority. It's the older vets like me and the, and the Gulf, first Gulf War because that was over 25 years ago. Right. Okay. And people ask, well, why is that? Well, generally speaking, when you're in your 50s, you're an empty nester. You're no longer fighting tooth and nail for promotions or your career. You are probably are close to paying off the mortgage and you're not struggling for college tuition anymore. Right. And you're looking towards retirement. So you've, you've taken care of a lot of the things that you got to take right. care of to get a lot of the stuff that just keeps you going right. by default. So, so what does that mean? That means now you have more time on your hands. And that's when the moral injury, which you've suppressed right. all this time, now comes up to the surface. Well, you may, it's okay, so maybe at that point it comes up and then people think, I'm, I'm just not going to endure this anymore. Or I'm not well, they don't, carrying this. The main, one of the major problems is they don't know what they have. Okay. Okay. Uh, some of the vets are told they have PTSD, but they don't have PTSD. Some of them are told uh, they might have traumatic brain injury. And... These vets know they don't have those things. Yeah, well, but traumatic have, brain injury is a physical injury. Right. And post-traumatic stress, although it shares many of the same symptoms of moral injury, and, and you can have PTSD and moral injury. You could have PTSD and not moral injury. You could have moral injury and not PTSD. Right. But right now... The, the VA 
does not recognize and treat directly for moral injury. Uh, so what happens is oftentimes the veteran is, I would say, misdiagnosed with PTSD and the treatment for PTSD and moral injury is different. Uh, I have a, an organization, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to lead an organization that's called Military Outreach USA and faith-based nonprofit to help veterans deal with moral injury. And it's our position that the main approach for moral injury is not a medical doctor with prescription drugs. It's the forgiveness and grace of a moral authority, a loving God, counseling of clergy and sensitive therapists, and the support of a community, spiritual community. So you got to put back, I guess if something moral was violated, then there's got to be some sort of healing on a forgiveness level then that takes place to, 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 to heal that moral yeah, brokenness? I'm, no, I'm, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a social worker. Uh, but uh, we have a book that we publish called They Don't Receive Purple Hearts. And it's about moral injury. So purple heart is what you get if you're physically injured. That's correct. So you've got an injury now that... But you don't people get a purple can't heart see. They can it. see the evidence of, it, but yeah, you don't get a purple heart. Right, this one. and it's it's a extremely comprehensive, basic primer about moral injury, uh, which talks about the history of moral injury, the symptoms of moral injury, uh, the it talks about moral injury vis-a-vis PTSD and traumatic brain injury. It talks about treatments and. Uh, it talks about healing. And this is a, you said this is a good book that's uh, not just for it, it's not a professional book like it's it's not an academic book. This is a this is a practical in the field book that would be great for people who are struggling themselves or for family members who want to understand. Absolutely, correct? this Our, is a, a layman's right. Uh, Our this is written uh, by the former uh, executive director of Military Outreach USA. Okay, <coughs> excuse me, his name is Joe Palmer. And he was a uh, Air Force enlisted veteran uh, who served in Vietnam. And I edited the book, so it's just the two of us. And uh, he did the whole writing and researching of it. And uh, it's just two guys. Neither one of us are uh, clinical psychologists or social workers. Uh, but we wanted to write something so that the public could understand the basics of it. That makes sense. Well, well, and uh, you know, moral injury doesn't even appear in the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which is what's used to diagnose, treat, prescribe PTSD. I, I mean, it, it's it, any kind of mental uh, issue, and so you you can't get a diagnosis or a formal diagnosis for it because it's it's not. It, no, it's not there, and I think they're on edition five right now. Edition six should be out uh, in the next few years, from what I understand. And there's hopes that it will be in there so that it can start to be professionally diagnosed. So it, well, you it's know, kind of in that. The VA right has now. has known about moral injury or has spoken 
yeah. about moral injury since 2009 when Jonathan Shea, who was a psychiatrist with the VA, coined the phrase of moral injury. So that's been, that's been 11 years now, yeah. over and, a decade. And so we, meaning Military Outreach USA, have recognized this uh, a long time ago. And we were frustrated because we didn't see any progress going forward on it. So that's why we wrote the book. Uh, that book, by the way, was published in 2015. It's not a recent publication. And so, uh, you know, we're just two guys, two veterans, who are tired of hearing a lot of talking, but not a, a, not a lot of stuff getting done. The good news is, now it's starting to pick up in research. So if people want to get that book, where can they go and get that? They can go to our website, okay. which is militaryoutreachusa.org. Okay. And they'll go to the resource tab. There's a moral injury tab, and the book is there. I'll find it and put a link directly to it right. in the and, show notes where they can get it. I interrupted you because you were talking about research. Yeah, well, the, res the good news is that now it's become a hot topic. Okay in research um, in, among psychologists, among social workers, psychiatrists. As a result, it's generating more research income for universities. Right. And so it's, it's a pretty hot topic now. So that's the good news. Yeah, so people are starting to get traction with it and discover more. Um, the Military Outreach USA, do you guys focus primarily on moral injury? Yeah, we actually are what we try to do is, our concept is to have at the local community level houses of worship and organizations, but primarily houses of worship that will reach out to our military community, which we define as active duty, reserves, National Guard, veterans of all eras, and their family members. We stress the family members equally. Okay. And so that these organizations at the local community level will reach out, express appreciation, provide support and encouragement and hope uh, if the veterans need it. And so the criteria for being served by Military Outreach USA is Basically, you just have to have worn a uniform. Yeah, we, we are a faith-based Christian organization. We make no apologies for okay. that. However, we do not proselytize. You don't have to be a Christian to be served by... In fact, you don't have to be a person of faith at all. Our only criteria is that the individual has worn the uniform of the United States Armed Forces or they're a family member thereof, because we stress the family members equally. Okay, that w which is powerful because, I mean, if, if one spouse is deployed, the other one is still feeling the weight of that because they're picking up a lot of the slack around oh, yeah, the home the, and then the they're dealing with the reentry. Serve, serve and sacrifice as much as, as the service members do. Uh, what else do I need to know about moral injury? What is there that so? What's the question that I'm not asking that you might go? Oh, hey, yeah. What about you know? Well, moral injury, and you know, is basically the healing process for moral injury. Uh, and once again, I want to reiterate: I'm not a psychiatrist, right. I'm not a medical doctor, but uh, 
moral injury, the way I see it, has uh, the healing process is really three major things. Okay. Number one, the veteran has to know that he ha he or she has the condition. So you got to identify it, right? Okay. You, they have to realize they have moral injury. You can't you can't help the condition if you don't know what it is. Okay. Number two is forgiveness. When when you have moral injury, you feel that you have participated in such bad stuff that nobody can love you, that God doesn't love you. In fact, you get mad at God, and that's okay. He can handle it, but you you don't feel worthy. You lose your sense of self-worth also at the time. So that's why veterans normally will not speak to their families about what they've gone through. Right. And there's a couple reasons. Number one, especially if they have moral injury, they don't want to risk losing the love or respect of their family members. And if they did something that's really heinous that breaks the right. moral code, then they know that broke everybody's code because that's pretty similar for most people. Right. Number two, they want to protect their family members from the moral injury that they are experiencing. So, so they won't talk about it. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, so you have, to, you have to seek forgiveness. Seek and receive forgiveness. And that could come from any authority that you feel is a moral authority that can't forgive you. And that could be, that could take a long time or it, it could be a short time, depending on, uh, you know, the moral authority that you respect and accept. Uh, and then the third thing, though, is once you realize what you have. That's one. And you get forgiveness. Two is forgiveness. Okay? Number three is to rebuild that lost sense of self-worth. And one of the best ways to rebuild that sense of self-worth is by serving others. And as a faith-based organization uh, with the many houses of worship, one of the best institutions in our society that we have that provides serving opportunities is a house of worship with all the various ministries that they have to reach out within the community, uh, you know, food pantries, uh, uh, very, you know, uh, different types of community outreach programs. And you can't get a better volunteer than a veteran, a person who has discipline, who is a team player, uh, who has dedication and focus. Right. If you give a veteran a mission, they'll drive that to the ground. So it's, it's a win-win. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, let, me, let me ask you this, because you brought up an interesting point earlier. We had that panel discussion in the training uh, where, you know, uh, Bob was up there just uh, ra randomly. You guys didn't even know you were called. He pulled three of you up there. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned some things about moral injury that m might surprise some people. I wanted to reference them real quick as we kind of close out. 
you said it was mentioned in the Bible, and, and you referenced from the yeah, book of Numbers sure. uh, when the warriors went off. Yeah, moral injury is nothing new. If you go to the Bible, the book of Numbers, chapter 31, when the Jewish warriors return from defeating the Midianites, Moses greets them outside of the camp, but will not permit them to re-enter the camp until they go through a purification process. The knights, when they returned from the Crusades, were not permitted to participate in the Holy Sacraments until they went through penance and reconciliation. Our Native American culture here has had sweat lodges and ceremonies for, for generations and generations. Society is known for millennia that if you send warriors out to war and they've got to participate in bad stuff, when they return, you gotta help them integrate. Well, see, in this story from Moses and Numbers, if I, if I would have read that at surface glance, I would have thought, oh, that like they've got to do something to be accepted. You know, they got to jump through who, but but it might not be that at all. It might be that with, with really kind of the you've kind of opened my eyes to that. Moses is going out there to pronounce forgiveness, and he's going out there to pull them in. He's not going out there to make them jump through a hoop. He's going out there and taking the initiative. On the front end, to like, hey, what you guys just endured, it will have marked you on the soul. And, I mean, goodness, he gave them the Ten Commandments. You shall not kill. Then they've just gone and done it. And so he's reconciling them, is, is what I see. Like, there's this gracious initiative that as, you know, the, the father of the house, he's he's taking there to, to bring these warriors back. Yeah, the... One thing I want to comment on, though, is on the, uh, the commandment of thou shalt not kill, okay? Uh, now, once again, I'm not a theologian, you know, and I haven't studied Greek and Hebrew and, and, all, Hebrew that kind of and stuff. all that stuff. But my understanding is the translation, the more accurate translation, is thou shalt not murder. That's actually correct. There's a difference between kill and murder. Right. But we don't, that's not what we learn. Yeah, we don't draw it out. Right. And so uh, that's how I've been able to handle it. No, and if you don't, you mess it up both ways. Because then when you have to take a life, as a soldier, as you've had to do, then you could feel an overwhelming sense of guilt or shame that you've really got to deal with. Um, And on the other hand, you read a verse like that, and then you get hyper-politically correct, and you won't discipline things in society that need to be disciplined. And so it cuts both ways. Um, Close out, you told us another story, a second story today. Yeah, about moral injury. Yeah, I've been, you know, I've been dealing with trying to explain moral injury to people now for ten years or so, and and uh, uh, another story came up that I that I talk about personal story that is, and that is uh, while I was still in Vietnam, I I moved up to uh, play coup in the Central Highlands. And I became an advisor for the Vietnamese Army, and uh, but it was at Corps headquarters. Corps headquarters is a very high level head. It's like the Pentagon, so it wasn't very dangerous. I didn't have to go out into the field very often, uh, but occasionally we would do inspection trips. And one day, uh, three of us, uh, inspection team flew out to a special forces camp on the Cambodian, Laos-Cambodian border with Vietnam. And the team was comprised of 
the senior officer was the deputy, was the Corps deputy senior advisor. He was a full colonel. That's a big deal. And the other, the second person was the command sergeant major. He was this senior ranking enlisted advisor for, for the Corps. And then I was the third team member. I was the young captain taking notes. So uh, we land at the Special Forces camp and we immediately come under attack and the Sergeant Major is killed. And he was maybe 20 meters away from me and it was a rocket that came in and he was there and I was here and he got hit. The rest of this story, as Paul Harvey says, is that the Sergeant Major was scheduled to go on R&R, that's rest and relaxation uh, tour or time in Hawaii the next day to visit his waiting wife to celebrate their 25th wedding anniversary. And now I was a captain, so I outranked the Sergeant Major in theory, uh, even though he had like 30 years experience and I had four, five. Yeah. And, uh, but I still outranked him. So I could have ordered the Sergeant Major not to get on that helicopter, knowing that he was gonna go see his wife, you know, the next day, but I didn't. And so, I have a moral injury, which is referred to as survivor's guilt. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's been with me for 50 years now. That was 50 years ago that that happened. So uh, that's another example of moral injury where because I failed, or, you know, my mind, you could, pers- you could say that I. You know, in had theory, I, you could have stopped it. Yeah, had I ordered him not to go, then he wouldn't have died. Now the odds of, you know, that, the odds were not real high, but it happened. Yeah, you look. You know, how how would you know to navigate? Yeah. I mean, it's so life is so hard, you know. But that's how moral injury is, though, because when when you feel that you something has happened that you could have prevented, then you're responsible. Right. And then imagine you carry that, and the longer you carry it, guilt and shame, they just thrive in isolation and in quiet. And uh, so it's important for people to get help and to step forward, or for people who know that someone's struggling to see them and to snatch them and grab hold of them. Um, thank you so much for your time. I'm so honored that you've got a major general in there with the experience that you have. Uh, letting us train you. It should be the other way. Well, and I've got to tell you, your presentation today, you and Bob, but mostly you, uh, it, we are, it's a God thing that I and my executive director, uh, Chappie Ferrer, attended this weekend because you have written these manuals which can be used in any small group, any church. It doesn't have to be a church. Any organization can use this that has veterans and to give them an understanding of invisible wounds of war Yeah. Uh, and the fact that there is hope and healing available 
to them. And so I thank you and Crosswinds Foundation uh, for what you've done. And this now gives my organization an opportunity to have content that we did not have before that we could share with others. Yeah, to pass and help others. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for being here, for being available. You've helped us with films. You've helped us by being here. You've helped us by even sitting down here and uh, inviting me into your space to share this information with others. Uh, I'm grateful for your service in the past, and I'm really thankful for what you've been doing since then and forthgoing. It's, it's been a, a total honor, and uh, I just want to uh, hope that the God will continue to bless you, your family, and Crosswinds Foundation. Now, I am going to put some links down in the show notes where you can learn more about Military Outreach USA. I'm going to put a link in the show notes where you can learn about the film Honoring the Code, where you can actually just stream that and watch that online. I'm going to put a link to the book that Major General Jim Mokuyama referred to about moral injury, the one that his organization actually put out. I've seen the resource. It is an amazing resource. And then while you're tracing all those links, here's what I would love for you to do. The topic of today was moral injury. It was not post-traumatic stress disorder. However, on our website, we've got a free PTSD self-assessment. I would love for you to just go there and just check it out and see if you're dealing with post-traumatic stress, see if you're dealing with and would benefit from any degree of emotional health. There's no upsell. There's nothing there uh, to take from you. There's only something there to give for you. It's a 10 question. It'll take you two to three minutes because it's all yes, no questions. And then you'll get instant feedback right there on the screen, emailed to you, and it will tell you exactly kind of how you answered and, and, and really how to navigate some of those terms. And, and here's what you'll see. If you're, if you're feeling this sense of internal soul struggle and it's not post-traumatic stress disorder, post-traumatic stress is actually something that's diagnosable. Now, we can't diagnose you. We can't treat you. We can't prescribe you. All we can do is kind of give you a tool and point in the right direction. But if you feel this internal soul struggle and then you realize, hey, it's not post-traumatic stress, then my, my question would be, hey, hey, is it what the general described here? Is it moral injury? Now, let me, let me tell you kind of where this is going to go. In the next week, I'm going to actually be back, and I'm going to do a talk on moral injury, and I'm going to give you, we're going to dive deep, and we're going to learn a little bit more about what Major General Jim Mokuyama was referring to. So go take the PTSD self-assessment, share us on Facebook, Share us with your social media feeds. Tag us. We'd love to see where you are. I'll talk to you again next week because, again, isolation is the enemy and the best days aren't behind. Freedom and the mission is all forward. And as we do that, we're better together.